we design our businesses to deliver returns at a thousand dollars an ounce long-term gold price and so it shouldn't be a surprise that we continue to outperform the market who's all hung up about you know the the optics of what they're doing rather than the bottom line we've never adjusted earnings we don't do any of that we like to present ourselves as a real deal profitable business happen to be focused on gold that's the voice of mark bristow confident combative and determined and after martin sorrell the longest serving chief executive in the FTSE 100 the company he founded and heads, Rangold Resources, is also the largest and most highly valued listed gold miner in London. I'm Alex Newman, a writer at the Investors Chronicle, and for this special podcast, I'll be asking why investors might look at a company whose operations are based in countries most international businesses avoid, which exercises no control over the price of its one product, and whose dividend is outmuscled by several peers. A few quick facts about Rangold Resources. As of mid-November 2017, its shares are priced at £73, and that values it at £6.8 billion, equivalent to around 30 times this year's forecast earnings. It yields around 1.1%, had just over £600 million cash and no debt at the end of September, and is well ahead of the FTSE 100 this year. Total returns over the last five years have been negligible, but returned well over 300% over the last decade. It's also focused on Africa and owns stakes of varying sizes in producing mines in Mali, Côte d'Ivoire and the Democratic Republic of Congo and is developing another in Senegal. So what's the attraction? The asset base that Rangold has is unquestionably high quality. The company is high quality. That's the voice of Kieran Hodgson, Pamir Gordon's mining and commodity analyst who has Rangold on a hold rating. Rangold has traditionally traded at a premium and that's for multiple reasons growth in the portfolio, the quality of assets, but also the scarcity value of, of, of having any large liquid company listed in London. So the default holding for many investors with large pots of capital to spend has been, if we've got, we want gold exposure, we buy Rangold. That has often driven uh, a higher multiple than typical averages. So spinning things back, we'd estimated that uh, Rangold was uh, investors at the prices prior to the Q3 results uh, were estimating prices north of $1,700, $1,800 an ounce gold into perpetuity. Now, you correlate that back to a, a, a the commodity prices that are currently on the screen and also what our beliefs are that you've got a you've got a difference there and ultimately whilst the company has very high assets you can find things being overvalued and and we felt that uh, certainly going into q3 numbers that the company was overvalued by the market one way rangold has been able to attract a premium is through its rigorous criteria set for project investment i asked the ceo mark bristow to explain at the company's recent third quarter results day it's hard to find any mining company, mining property or opportunity to make 20% return. And, uh, you know, that we've built that on the basis of input costs. So that equation has always been there in our, our, our filter and strategy. But the gold price has moved. So if you take a standard gold mine back in 2002 and you you would have needed a $450 gold price to do that. That same gold mine today, because of the inflation of input costs, uh, requires $1,000. In fact, in the last two years, 2011, you know, that uh, that inflation peaked uh, on input costs, and they started flattening and coming down. And that's where we, we, we were 
lifting the gold price until the gold price really started to run and it left the input costs behind and we just felt that you and you know you saw the industry it went pear-shaped because it followed the gold price and it didn't look at good sound business fundamentals does that suggest should we take then that you're you're pretty much agnostic about the gold price exactly you know i mean we were i mean the gold price like it is now you know we it's very good for us and uh, there are going to be times like, you know, people have forgotten already. In, uh, in uh, December 2015, the gold price went to 1,050. We were the only gold company that made profits. And this is profits after depreciation and all that because we've never impaired. So, you know, if you look at a 20-year history of a gold company that has never impaired, that in itself is quite a sort of standout feature. Another standout feature of Rangold's business is the countries it operates in each of which have experienced civil war or serious internal conflict in the last decade, and which rank amongst the most corrupt places to do business anywhere, according to Transparency International. So how does Rangold manage these risks? Here's Kieran Hodgson again. DRC is a, is a known concern for, for many, many people, and the, the mining code, potential mining code changes there have already been knocked back once, and I think it was in 2015, uh, because it was seen as very detrimental to the mining industry and, and would concern uh, or would limit future inward investment. Um, so the, that's a one particular issue. Now, obviously, Rangold has 45% of Kabali. Um, the operations in, in West Africa, in Cote d'Ivoire, in Mali, etc., I think they're, they're known knowns. They're, they're, their economies are in many ways more diverse and they, they have other sources of revenue and I think uh, Marilia uh, at one point was uh, around 6 to 9% of uh, Mali's GDP and I think that that that, that kind of influence in in into the the, the economic prosperity of a, of a of a nation is important and I think that uh, the, the powers that be in those in those countries appreciate the inward investment that Rangold has made and others have made and and the infrastructure that's been created and I think there's a there has to be a, a give and take uh, and it's certainly not acceptable for resource companies to go into these these nations strip out their natural wealth and and uh, basically leave nothing in behind you know it's it's up to the the mining companies it's their responsibility to ensure that there is a legacy and that comes through generational education through health systems uh, infrastructure etc so and that's something that Rangold has always prided itself upon and I think it's an incredible model that other operators should adhere to. These legacy issues are integral to the way Rangold views and presents itself but in the company's estimation it is also just good business sense. For anyone who's watched the recent woes of another African gold miner, Acacia Mining, it's a particularly pertinent point. Mark Bristow again. We treat our countries as shareholders. We go there every quarter. I give a presentation to the community and the press. And the press, we reckon, represent the people. And sometimes the press are very jaundiced. But we've been able to educate them and we transparently disclose the taxes we pay the money that's outstanding uh, because the government hasn't paid it back to us and the contributions we make to the communities and 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 the projects that we uh, support and the benefits to it and we stand scrutiny like we would in front of our shareholders and and that's been good for us and Mali which is our longest uh, investment you know we're we can stand up and say that Without fear of contradiction, the, the Mali Treasury has benefited more from our projects than we have. And when we do, we reinvest it because we're a public company. 
and we you know we pay out dividends to our shareholders we grow our business platform and we're highly profitable and the same goes to 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 Tongan which is now at that harvest stage where everyone starts to benefit and it's important that you know if you take Kabali which is a a big long two and a half billion dollar investment the government starts benefiting immediately and it's been benefiting since 2009-2010 and you know from indirectly and directly in the form of fees and licenses and all that sort of thing and we'll only start you know we only get our capital back early in the 2020s and we've got to get the capital back before we can start making a return on our investments. So when you do that, and if you if you NPV and, and, and on a discount basis the money, you know the the uh, the most uh, the most aggressive codes like the DRC, the state gets more than sixty percent of the financial benefits after the recoupment of capital. Of course, the the devil. Lies in the fact that often gold miners don't deliver against their own plans, and the whole thing becomes an unprofitable, progressive activity because it's not a business. And then, and that's damaging in many ways because you're consuming a national asset with no one getting any benefits. And you know, there's you know, just recently you've seen that issue raised consistently from the shareholders. And we've seen evidence now recently of countries doing the same. Turning back to existing or potential investors in Rangold, the current yield of around 1% does not amount to a strong income case. As we've said, that's partly down to a broadly positive view of the stock and the premium valuation it has attracted. For Kieran Hodgson, commodity investors face a trade-off between returns today and capital expenditure on commission projects and exploration. Well, this is one of the reasons Rangold has been... Uh, has uh, acquired a premium valuation because of its ability to convert exploration programs into into future operations and the company obviously does have a, a strategy a three and five or it's now a three and four um, strategy to deliver three more world-class operations in four years and undeniably the there is an opportunity for that but you have to weigh that against the potential erosion of near-term shareholder returns, so um, the potential for enhanced dividends or share buybacks or, or any kind of return of capital that many shareholders are looking for from from commodity companies or mining companies because of the, the recent elevated commodity price cycle we've been through may not come to fruition. Uh, and I think that's something we have to be realistic about is that if there is this recycling of capital into new projects not all of it's going to come back to shareholders. It has to go back in the ground. So I think we have to temper that enthusiasm. So how can a gold company strike a sensible balance when it comes to the dividend? And how does Rangold stack up against its peers, such as Polymetal and Centimin? I'm on record as, as having a particular dislike for progressive dividends from mining companies because ultimately you, you invest in a mining company because you want exposure to a commodity uh, and you want to enjoy the benefits of the the, the, the up, time, up cycle in, in the commodity price and then the, the, you know, the inevitable is to sell the, the holdings as, as you believe commodity prices would decline. So ultimately progressive dividends don't meet my perceived view as how mining companies should be returning capital to shareholders. The the dividend side of things and the the current rate of distribution, we've got to look at how the companies have, have set themselves up. Polymetal and Sentiment have 
openly said that they wish to distribute a higher percentage of their free capital back to shareholders and that's going to be their business model going forward. Um, yes, there is opportunities to grow the portfolio. Um, Polymetal does that through its organic growth profile and that's offering one of the highest compound annual growth rates of production or any of the large producers. But it has a, a, has a, a, a dividend policy that ensures that shareholders benefit from that uh, given the structure that it has in place, Sentiment has said that it wants to put, uh, give 30% of its free cash flow back to shareholders every year, and that's partially because of the monetization of Sukari. Rangold will have some considerable investments to make. I would argue that their, their dividend has never really been competitive to other peers. And that said, I would never invest in Rangold for a dividend. I think Rangold is a capital appreciation story based on sound resources and operations that ultimately, uh, if, if you wish to have exposure to the gold price, you would buy something like a Rangold because it gives you that assurance of quality. Comparisons with peers on a total return basis or in terms of the dividend is an area Mark Bristow is intimately versed in. No, I think, you know, fundamentally, I mean, both those companies are not pure gold companies. Um, but, you know, the, the dividends is good. I mean, it's a fundamental part of any uh, commercial endeavor. It should be. And so this concept of gold miners not paying dividends, I mean, the, what is, it's saying then is, is that you are designing your business never to create value other than to go up and down in line with the, the gold price. And that in itself is, a, is, a, is an important measure because if you look at the top 13 gold producers, just from 2010, only two, that's us and Poly Mattel, uh, have outperformed the gold price. Mm. And if you look at Rand Gold, we've outperformed the gold price three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And, uh, and if you look at the industry and the Huey and the XAU, it's been a, you know, it's been a, a, a fantastic example of how to destroy shareholder value. And so, you know, again, um, we, 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 we came into this world 23 years ago with a, a very clear mandate to our investors, and that is we're going to build profitable gold mines. We're going to give you a, a carried insurance policy, self-funded, yielding to ensure that you are hedged against in, in your other portfolios. And I think we've demonstrated that. You know, we, we trade substantially four and a half times what we were in 2005. Most of our peers still haven't got back to their 2005 share prices. Pamir Gordon's research also suggests Rangold has been the most highly correlated gold miner to the gold price so far this year. In that case, why not remove the operational risk and just buy physical gold instead? The simple answer is that gold equities offer leverage to the gold price. An 8% increase from $1,200 to $1,300 an ounce, for example, is a 50% earnings increase for a miner with a $1,000 an ounce break-even price. But why should you even consider investing in gold? Though it offers no yield and serves a peculiar economic function, the yellow metal has done well against both stocks and bonds over the last five decades. Then again, gold can be notoriously volatile and subject to sometimes opaque forces. So why hold it? One of the main reasons we talk about gold and why people invest in gold is it's an excellent asset for diversification purposes. That's the voice of one analyst with a particularly close interest in gold. Uh, my name's Alistair Hewitt. I'm head of market intelligence at the World Gold Council. 
why people invest in gold. And it offers three attributes which are perfect for um, a long-term investor. It delivers returns over the long term. Um, it offers diversification and it's a highly liquid asset. And those are three good reasons for investors to own gold. But that diversification point, that's intimately linked to different types of people buying gold at different points in time. So you have India and China who buy it for cultural reasons. In contrast, you have central banks that buy it for policy reasons. And then you compare that to industrialists and manufacturers who make, for example, smartphones. They buy it because it's, a, it's, it's an excellent material to be included in technology. There's that diversification of demand, um, different types of people buying gold at different points in time, makes gold an excellent asset to have in a portfolio for diversification purposes. Alistair spends a lot of his time tracking both demand and supply for gold, a feature of the market that's often peculiarly missing from discussion. In the short term, um, market movements in the kind of the capital markets will always grab media attention. And you'll always see headlines related to movements in the US dollar gold price, um, movements in US macroeconomic indicators. Um, but the gold market's global. The gold market isn't purely focused on the US. As we talked earlier on, you've got significant people buying gold in India and China, um, and they'll be thinking about gold from their perspective, which will be cultural. It'll be local, thinking about local issues and local conditions. Um, so at the World Gold Council, we really want to make sure we talk about the gold market in its broadest possible sense. I think when people are thinking about the investment case for gold, um, the supply and demand story is important. People need to understand that the diversification argument for owning gold is based on a really healthy gold market where you have different people buying gold at different points in time. Allied with that, you do have restricted supply. Um, mine production um, is expensive. Um, it's hard to dig out of the ground um, and it only grows about one, one and a half percent per annum, um, the kind of total stock of gold. So the supply and demand story really does underpin the investment case for gold. Though jewellery demand remains fairly reliable and exchange-traded fund flows still a small proportion of overall demand, it is states, or more specifically central banks, that have been the big buyers in recent years. The World Gold Council's Alistair Hewitt once more. When you look at central bank demand over the past 10 years, 15 years, it's arguably the single biggest shift in the gold market we have seen. If we were talking 10 years ago, I'd have been talking about Western central banks steadily selling their gold reserves. And they own a lot of gold, all connected to the gold standard. Um, but then you had the financial crisis. All of a sudden, central banks realised owning gold, which wasn't anybody else's liability, that adds diversification to a portfolio, um, and that is a hedge against all sorts of risk, is actually a good thing. Um, so a lot of the Western central banks stopped selling gold, and the emerging market central banks became more um, acquisitive. So they started buying more gold. Now, the emerging market central bank stories really underpinned by a lot of them holding a lot of US dollars and wanting a hedge against the dollar exposure they have. And gold plays into that very nicely. And what about supply? If, as Mark Bristow suggests, most gold miners have been incapable of creating shareholder value, is there sufficient incentive to create new sources of supply? Mine production is really interesting. It's kind of like a, like a slow-moving tanker. The record high in year-to-date output we've seen in 2017 is largely a function of mining companies' investment decisions a few years ago when they were opening new mines. Looking forward, what's likely to happen is the dramatic drop in exploration and development that we saw from 2013 onwards when mining companies had to readjust their budgets in in response to the lower gold price, that's going to be weighing on mine production. So 
we expect mining or mine gold mine production to remain high in 2017, probably around similar level in 2018. Um, but from 2019 onwards, I think there's um, there's going to be downward pressure on mine production, and I wouldn't be surprised to see it tailing off. Pamir Gordon analyst Kieran Hodgson agrees. We looked through the production profiles of 68 of the largest gold companies uh, that are producing publicly available information and we looked at their production profiles and we looked at their future production profiles and we looked at their reserve base and we looked at where they think they are going to grow their reserves from and how they are going to how this is all going to fit together and we come to some quite concerning conclusions that 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 ultimately the, the the reserve bases that are it certainly belong to the the larger companies are not of the highest quality that we've we've traditionally seen so it's quite easy to to lead us to believe that ultimately the quality of production is going to decline therefore we need a higher gold price to ensure the same returns as we're seeing today but also if you look back on, on some of the largest discoveries in the 50s and 60s we saw multiple 50 million ounce discoveries we saw multiple 30 million ounce discoveries uh, in the 70s and 80s it slowed down but we haven't seen a mega 50 million plus ounce discovery in the last 10-15 years we have not really seen any plus 20 million ounce discoveries all of the the reserves and resources that are known from the operators at this moment, whether you've discovered 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago and now have become economic. So actually the, the, it, it's born out of mining being such a, a, a long-life industry that you discover these resources, but you don't necessarily get to extract them and, and generate that economic benefit for possibly 20, 30 years uh, and, unless the conditions are correct. Uh, and that's one of the concerns is that with gold prices around 1200 1250 a lot of these resources probably will never be economic given the input cost pressures that many mining companies are facing. The supply-demand picture then looks favourable to Rangold. But that's not the only determinant of gold prices or with it gold miner earnings. One reason for this caution and realism is interest rates as Kieran explains. We're economic bulls ultimately, so we're expecting to see a normalisation in, in interest rates to, to something more manageable, uh, uh, certainly a normalisation of growth. And therefore, uh, it, it's prudent not to assume that gold prices will be elevated for, for an extended period of time because uh, it's as a from a commodity perspective it's it's very unwise when you're forecasting the results and the financials of a of a commodity company such as uh, any of the mining companies to assume that you're going to have an elevated price into perpetuity uh, it's a quick way of ensuring that your financial forecast will be wrong so there's an element of uh, economic optimism but there's also a, a, an element of realism in commodity pricing for the longer term it will surprise no one to learn that mark bristow is a gold bull but his view is less complicated, as he explains in his typically combative, confident style. You know, whether it's investors looking to buy gold because they're worried about what the President of the United States is going to do next, or, or because they think uh, they would like to manufacture something with it or create jewellery, which is the majority of Wolfdeck, that doesn't really matter in my mind. It's, you know, is gold considered a precious metal? And do people want it in their portfolio? And the, and the answer to that is very clearly yes. You know, if you go, it's interesting if you go back to 1970 or even or in the 1980s and, and the 90s and you look at, you know, from that point to today, gold has uh, outperformed just about every asset class. 
uh, and it certainly outperformed the equities, the gold equities. So you know that's and 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 so there's a, you know and and today never have we seen more reason to have gold in your portfolio. Um, and you know a lot of investors go to the ETFs uh, or the royalty companies because they feel that they're protected from management. You know what we try, what we've presented is, and we've got owners in our company, people who have owned our stock for more than 15 years. And, uh, and, and we, we're proud of being able to present something that stands, you know, head to head with any of the FTSE 100 companies. We've been in that index for a very long time and we're a, a top performer in the index, even as a gold stock. Whether existing or potential Rangold investors agree will, of course, depend on their own attitudes to gold, risk and dividends. I've been Alex Newman and you've been listening to this Investors Chronicle special podcast on Rangold. For more podcasts, go to iTunes, Acast, or visit the Investors Chronicle website. Acast powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.